Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Medicine on call. There's been a lot of talk in the news about doctor shortages, and I really wanted to discuss that today. It's kind of interesting how we have these um, emergencies that pop up, whether they be gun control, whether they be um, the opioid epidemic, opi- opioid epidemic. A lot of things are all of a sudden the worst thing in the world, and you know, we're playing catch up and somehow it's become this overwhelming need to do something about it. And the doctor shortage has been something that's been mentioned for quite a while. First, it was the primary care shortage. Now there's an, an, a general doctor shortage projected to be over 100,000 doctors by, I think, the year 2025 or 2030. But when you look at the actual root cause of the doctor shortage, I think it's been totally preventable. There's a doctor, or uh, yes, a doctor was on the show, I think it was Dr. Newman, uh, several weeks ago, and she talked about the, the residency programs and how there were about 50,000 doctors trained, graduating from medical school, ready to enter residency, 50,000 of them per year who could not match in a residency program and were doing other things, whether that be working as a barista or anything else outside of the healthcare field. And that's man and woman power, you know, that could be used for to take care of patients in rural areas to answer the doctor shortage. And the government has put a quota on the number of residency spots in the country. So this is, again, something that's artificially created. You would think that the government would expand, seeing that this is an emergency, that they would expand immediately the residency spots available throughout the country in order to have this, this physician power force, workforce, enter and be able to access and then go and provide care to rural areas, underserved um, communities in um, in cities, etc. They're not doing anything like that. Under the Affordable Care Act, what they did is empower um, allied healthcare professionals like medical assistants and physician assistants and nurse practitioners to actually be allowed to expand their scope of practice. Imp- you know, encourage more training of these allied healthcare professionals to become the face of the healthcare system. Meanwhile. <laughs> I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. But if you think about it in terms of cost and cost to the hospitals, cost to the, the perceived cost to the healthcare system, you kind of understand where they're coming from. There's this mindset that the allied healthcare professionals are cheaper than actual MDs, and that's why there's been a turnover towards that. Then you add in the HB1 uh, visa doctors that have come in, and they've actually gotten residency spots ahead of American trained physicians, and you realize that 
you know, this is money that's going on, that's being paid to enter the, the system for these residency spots, and it's become a money-making venture for the hospitals, plus they get cheap labor. I mean, this is just a disaster, and it's man-made. It's government-made, and this is something that the patients have absolutely no clue about. Did you know anything about this, Dave, or, or were you in the dark like kind of I was before I learned this on my own show? Oh, yeah. Uh, Dave, can you hear me? Yeah, I, I can hear you. Were you in the dark about this, too, as, as I was? Oh, I, I, you know, it's like everything else, uh, totally in the dark, and the mainstream can media... Can you speak a little louder, Dave? I can't hear you. Um, yeah, how's that? Is that better? It's better. Stay there. Um, you know, it, it's uh, the mainstream media is in the dark as well, and they keep us in the dark. So it's, uh, you know, it's a snowball going downhill that, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I'd heard, we'd all heard of the doctor, quote, unquote, doctor shortage, and the, particularly the doctor shortage in uh, super rural America. But, uh, you know, it hadn't been explained, nor had it been expanded on. So I think we're all in the dark, and have been. Well, it's, it's always this crisis mode. And as soon as you have a crisis, then you get to bring in answers you know, to try to fix the crisis. But they've never really... There are never answers that actually fix the problem. They basically keep the situation in, in the crisis mode so that you can keep adding regulations and rules and control because it's become this, you know, all hands on deck, we need to do something situation. It's just an, it's completely fake. I mean, and not only do you have doctors who are able-bodied, able to help patients. You now have a system that's driven by, um, you know, we talked about it before, by algorithms, by evidence-based medicine, by, quote, best practices. And now they're sticking in this value-based system. I mean, it's all neurolinguistics. You know, you change the, the, the wording, but it's still it's the same thing, where doctors are, and any <clears throat> allied healthcare professional are being put in the, the a system, but they don't get to make decisions about patient care. It's coming from on high, from a central source where there's practice guidelines that everybody has to follow, and those practice guidelines aren't cheaper. The outcome isn't really better. What it does put you on is a ton of medication, and if you don't follow that rule, then you're disruptive. And we talked about that last week, disruptive physicians and the nurses are going to be in that same boat at some point. Physician assistants are all going to be in that same boat if they become critical thinkers and decide that they want to practice individualized health care. I mean, it's amazing how language has become a weapon in our country. I think, you know, worldwide, frankly, that if, if you say the wrong thing, it gets weaponized that you're attacking somebody, you're bullying somebody. You want to take away someone else's right, rights. And it's totally not true, when in actuality, everybody who's saying it is the ones that are actually perpetrating the, the how can I put it? I wouldn't say crime in the, quite, quite in that sense, 
they're perpetrating the thing that they're telling you that you're doing, that they're bullying you, that they're trying to put you on the defensive, that they're trying to shut you up so that you don't express your opinion. And this is what medicine really is about. It's about freedom. It's about freedom of choice. It's about freedom to choose for the patient to choose the, the type of care that they want, the medications that they want to take, whether or not they want to have surgery, whether or not they want to put a vaccine in their body or their child's body. It's about choice, and it's being completely stripped from the system, as is informed consent. Because if you don't know what's going on, then you have the ability, or someone has the ability to control you. And that's really the tragic part of all this. It's the loss of control. It's the not given not being given all the facts because they think you're stupid but more than that they just want to control from cradle to grave and i said it before the system was so awesome why is the lifespan is it's dropped to the lowest point in years so we're not living longer we're actually dying sooner and the system is great and it should be the opposite don't you think <laughs> no question but uh you know i um what, uh, if you want to get sick, go to the hospital? <laughs> if you also want to get poor, go to a hospital. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Very poor, for sure. But, you know, I, I uh, yeah, I think it's gone backwards, and I think it's going more that direction. With And it's proven every day with Obamacare. It's it set its back continues to set it back and just make uh, the system worse and worse which is being improved well, and more expensive well definitely more expensive I think you're right but I mean the, you think about how the system the hospital system is set up they've actually had their hand in a lot of changes in the healthcare system that benefit them you know it benefits them that there are less competition that there the hospital systems and the community hospitals close, that the rural hospitals close, that benefits the major hospital systems, the, you know, the Association of Hospitals, America's Hospital Association, it benefits them. It benefits them that you, you know, the doctors are, independent doctors have been squashed, you know, you've gone from 60% down to 30% and counting, and they've had to become employees of hospitals and even if they have private practices these accountable care organizations are a way of putting them under the yoke of the hospital system because they have to they have to have the same charge master they have to use the same protocols they have to use the hospital as their resource for any testing any procedures any um uh surgeries the hospital gets it's like a funnel so everything gets funneled back into the hospital system. There is no autonomy. There is no ability to make a deal with your patient. That doesn't happen because, I mean, I have a friend who's gone to get a procedure done. They haven't even billed the person yet because the system is so so poorly run that they can't even generate a bill because it's all centralized. This is not efficiency. It's not cost savings. It's a joke. And I think as long as patients believe or don't know that they do have a choice it's marketing it's punitive you know they're making you pay more out of pocket if you want to leave 
your um, go out of network for your insurance uh, for for care because you want to be seen by a doctor that you like. You want to be seen sooner. You want a procedure that the in-network doctors don't offer. It's really driving patients to have to, to have to settle, pay more, get less, not have a choice, and like it. I mean, that's completely the opposite of a free market system, isn't it? Huh, no question. No question. It's, uh, you know, it's... It's like a... Well, it's, it's like the story of... Uh, I think we're all frogs in the boiling water, you know? Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're sitting here in the water... Uh, accepting the fact that it's getting warmer and warmer and we're not doing anything about it and uh, I think uh, I think we're frogs quite frankly does that make sense well we still have a choice yeah well, we have a choice though but we need to stop being distracted with all of this division you know we've done a masterful job of divide and conquer and at this point the people who are at odds with each other really need to take a step back and we both need to figure out both sides are we really are we serving there are we serving that common good are we getting what we really want or is somebody else benefiting from the, the chaos and i think some someone else is benefiting from the chaos it always works that way you know and we have a we have a choice to make this is a, i think we're at a crossroads Healthcare is at a crossroads. Countries at a crossroads. Hell, the world, the world basically is at a crossroads. And unless we take a step back and start really rationally thinking, critically thinking about what the next step should be, not by emotion, but using critical thinking, that's the only way I think we can extract ourselves from this this crazy system. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. You know, ultimately, before the break, I was trying to break down the, the importance of really getting educated and stop, stop doing the thing, same things and expecting a different result. I mean, it's pretty obvious now that the changes in the healthcare system are not patient-based. They're not patient-centered. They don't really improve patient care. We've had doctors come on the show to talk about what it's like to be a physician. I mean, from a patient standpoint, I mean, Dave, you've been a patient, unfortunately. You know, you've, been, you've had to enter the system. And what was your, your experience in the hospital? I mean, were you really told what the cost of something is before they did it? Did they actually bring you in to make any kind of health care decisions? Or were, were things just done to you? Well, you know, I had mentioned to you one of the things that uh, uh, they wanted to do, you know, almost right off the bat was, uh, have you had your uh, flu vaccine? And I said, no. And so, you know, out pops the needle. And I said, I, and I don't want it. Don't give it to me. And um, so they didn't. And then uh, uh, because of the procedure I had, uh, they were, they were uh, concerned about the potential of pneumonia and so they have this uh, I don't even know what this stuff is I'm sure you do but uh, the it's 
they run it like through an oxygen mask, but it's some kind of gas stuff that's supposed to make you cough and and keep your lungs and and keep you coughing up the fluid in your lungs so you don't uh, uh, get pneumonia. Except many 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 years ago, and uh, when I was in the service, I had pneumonia, and they gave me this stuff and. You know, I told him, hey, this doesn't work on me. I don't want, you know, I don't, I, it didn't work in 1970 and I don't want it now. So don't give it to me. Don't right. come back. And, uh, you know, it, it, and they, they went with what I said and they didn't give me a flu shot and they didn't give me the, whatever this stuff was, probably get charged for it anyway, but they didn't give it to me and I didn't want it. And they were sort of the, set back that somebody would stand up to them and, and say no. <laughs> uh, I don't think they were... I, I would venture to say that 99% of the people that work on floors in hospitals are never told no, and they don't know how to, you know, what are we going to do with this patient? He just said no. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there's very little communication. People just come into the rooms and do things. You know, they put things in your IV, oh, yeah. they come in for various therapies, but they don't really tell you who they are, what they're doing, and why. It's just because it's been ordered. And you do have, you just described the perfect scenario. Ask questions. Make them really explain why something needs to get done, and is it absolutely necessary. That's really important. I mean, you shouldn't be just sitting there as a, as a, some sort of captive audience, and, you know, just whatever happens to you is at the will of somebody else, that's totally not appropriate. Well, uh, you and know, patients say that. Oh, go ahead. I think it goes a little bit further than that in that uh, I didn't really have that help, uh, a friend or a relative or something, and they're asking the question, so I was right. doing it myself. But with that being said, uh, you know, you're, you're not in the hospital because you're about to have a big party. You're there because you're sick and something has happened Correct. to you. And it's very easy when you're in those conditions or you're coming out of an operation, you're coming out of being under uh, or, you know, induced into sleep with anesthesia or whatever the circumstance is, you're not 100%. So it's very easy for them to come in and and you're thinking, oh, well, whatever they're doing, it's got to be good for me. The doctor must have ordered it. And you don't, you know, you're not thinking right and you're, you're not... Uh, it's tough. They got you. They got you. They got the advantage on you. I think you're. That's absolutely. That's absolutely true. And you were conscious. Imagine the people ending up in the ICU, who are so sick that they don't. They can't make consent. But one of the things that people really need to understand is when you get admitted to a hospital and all the paperwork that they throw at you to sign, you must read that because that is your your passive consent for them to do whatever they want to you. And you really have to think about, well, the family member, the loved one, the caregiver, if the patient can't do it, they really need to read that with a critical eye and strike things that they don't agree with. You have to do this at the time that you enter the hospital because that's a contract. And they, do a, they take a lot of advantage of the patient by someone just signing because they're under duress. That's where I mean, you have to have your P's and Q's about you from the time you enter the hospital. Doctor's office is a little bit different because you are 
you can control the situation. It's not an emergency 99% of the time. But you should read that paperwork as well. I mean, Twyla Brace has been on my show and I'm going to have her on the show in the future because she's just such a maven on privacy. You do not have to sign HIPAA. That is not required for patients to sign that. It has nothing to do with privacy. What it does do is allow your health information to be shared by whatever covered entity is associated with that physician's office. Any vendor, any equipment vendor, salesman, anybody, you know, the electronic medical record system, anybody that they have a relationship with is a covered entity. And all that stuff can be shared. When you put your, when the doctor puts your information on their EHR, electronic health record system, it's going into a cloud. It's not held in the doctor's office anymore. It's not like a paper chart that you put into your file and it's locked. Nobody can access a paper chart unless, God forbid, your office burns down or somebody goes in there and steals it physically. But the, the, the safety, the autonomy, the privacy is not the same on a cloud. I don't care how many times they promise you it's encrypted, it's locked. Hospitals all over the country have had their medical records attacked by outside um, hackers. They've had their medical information held, held hostage. If they don't pay it, it's going to be destroyed. So they're paying these entities who've hacked into their system. And supposedly, I would think, hospitals have extreme, you know, encrypted, uh, safety-minded, you know, whole facility kind of thing to protect their patient data. And if they can't do it, do you really trust the EHR companies to be able to be 100%? I surely don't, right? So this is, these are things that can follow you. The most power that anybody has in this new um, electronic hacker world is your patient data because it doesn't change. And somebody said this before, and I, now I understand it, and I totally believe it. Your financial information changes. That's not a good snapshot of somebody. But their health information doesn't. And that could be used as a powerful piece of data. And it's all data-driven. And we can digress every time you talk to your Alexa and your Siri and all this other nonsense that people do, which I don't understand, that's also capturing data that's going on a cloud that's being used to get a snapshot of you from and a complete picture psychologically, emotionally, physically, from a um, health information standpoint. That's all being used to track you. Those Fitbits are being used to track you. You know, I'm sitting here now at a conference, and it's about health information technology. And just as a, you know, an observer, because I wanted to understand where the healthcare system is going. And it's going towards a 360-degree capture of information from the time you sleep to the time you go throughout your day to the time you go back to bed. They want to capture all of that data. And they want to use that data to sell you things, to you know, tailor make prescriptions for you and, and healthcare decisions for you. But your privacy is essentially non-existent. 
even though they're saying that you're going to be a number and it's metadata, hardly. When they know that what your Fitbit is telling them and what your, you know, those little programs that measure how long you sleep and if you're snoring, that's all data that's going back into a cloud. And what they really want is a single capture source. One cloud, Google-driven, where everything, all these other electronic medical record systems, um, health information from your 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 wearable data, you know, your trackers, your social media sites, you name it, they want all of that to go up into one cloud so they can get a picture of you. I mean, come on. This is like crazy stuff. Just because it's cool and trendy doesn't mean it's good. I think this is the moral of the story. Doesn't that actually freak you out, Dave? Oh, yeah. Uh, and we're going to have to take a break on that. It's... Okay, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out of pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. You know, prior to the break, I was telling you, telling you listeners about the mindset of the folks at this conference, and it really became, I mean, I've always had this in the back of my mind thought, but being in a, a conference with 40,000 people, and I don't think a lot of them are physicians, this is a system that's been literally co-opted. Healthcare has been co-opted by Wall Street interests, by IT professionals, by various consultants, by the government, and it's not about patient care. It's literally about mining patient data so that you can sell it to the highest bidder. So we're talking now about big pharma being able to access your portal. If you have an electronic medical system, everybody knows what I'm talking about. It's a portal that's, that connects you with your doctor's office so your doctor can communicate with you, let you know what the labs are, tell you about new appointments, you know, trigger um, things that about taking your medication, you name it. Well, they want to use that data, big pharma, to, <laughs> they always use these euphemisms, I love this stuff. You know, they want to communicate with you to leverage, quote-unquote, this data. And I know what this is going to be. They're going to send commercials back about various medications through the portal 
based on what the diagnosis is, etc. So you have no safe space between you and what your doctor is talking about that they're not going to be able to access. Various, and I can just see it now, it's going to become a commercial-driven thing, and someone's going to make money on the on big pharma being able to sell their wares to interested patients or patients who, you know, it, it's like free media for them. I'm sure they're paying somebody, the HR system, the hospital, you name it. Someone's going to get a payback for using that patient data so they can access it. That's not privacy. That has nothing to do with healthcare, right? We talked about Big Pharma way a long time ago, but I'll repeat it. These, you know, studies that are done and that they come out with after the results, you have to take this medication. They're underwritten by Big Pharma. There's a conflict of interest. As we all know, if you've ever taken statistics, you can make a statistic do whatever you want based on who you put into your data stream, who you take out of it. So a lot of these things actually don't, you know, they don't really bear out as necessarily being true. I was looking at a colleague's um, Twitter, and there's an article about the statin drugs, for example. You see a lot of articles written about them, but they're underwritten by the statin makers, and they're always positive. There's never a negative study about what goes on with the complications of taking a statin drug to control your cholesterol. And this is the standard of medicine right now where, you know, if it's a medication, they give you the little side effect at the end of it, right? So fast you can barely hear it. But it's all driven to make you think that I can only fix a problem if I take a pill. Nothing treats it. Have you noticed this, Dave? Nothing cures it, except maybe Harvoni, which that's the only one I know, but it's like $80,000 to treat hepatitis C. Yeah. But that's the only one. The rest of them are you're supposed to take a pill for the rest of your life, or two, or three. I think the average now is 11 medications for an average American citizen, which is absolutely ridiculous. How can anybody need to take that much medication? It's... Uh... it's it's just, a con game. It's gone completely out of control. Yeah. We don't know when to stop. I mean, ultimately, I think Big Pharma's goal is to have us on as many medications as possible every day for the rest of our lives. And that's how, you know, keep us sick and have no cost controls whatsoever. I mean, there's, and just to digress again, there's a movement now to really put, to have Congress remove the safe harbor from pharmaceuticals, right now they can basically rig a system where you can use payola to keep prices high. Pharmacy benefit management companies are examples of this, where they're like a clearinghouse and the hospital or the insurance company gets paid back for having their medication on the formulary. They get a payment every time someone chooses that drug. And this is a safe harbor. So the government has carved out uh, a place that this is not considered to be illegal. Now, I can't write a prescription. I can't send a patient to a, uh, I don't know, if I have an interest in a radiology center as a physician, I own it with other physicians. That's considered a kickback. That's stark law. But these guys can sell 
medications. They can artificially decide what medications set the price for it. Remember the orphan drugs that only cure a certain, you know, have a a very few people who have the disease. The cost for those drugs are crazy expensive. No one's going to jail because there's actually a law. Congress has actually carved out a law or space that makes this legal. Why? But if you think about who's spending money for lobbying on Capitol Hill, you have your answer to that question. The system is completely corrupt. It's hard. I mean, patients want need to know this so they can make a conscious choice. But you, you know, I've been up to Capitol Hill multiple times. It's like talking to an echo chamber. They listen to you. They say they're going to do something. Nothing ever gets done. It's very tedious. But the only chance that we have right now to make the system work in our interest is to withdraw our consent. Stay healthy, for God's sake. Stop doing things that make you sick. Change your diet. Exercise. Nobody can force you not to do that, right? So patients really need to take um, a responsibility, a stop talking about stuff, and actually do it. And I've said it before. Go to your physician. Take your medications with you and have an honest conversation about whether you need to be on all of these medications. It's not a hard thing to do. First of all, it would be cost-effective, I'm sure, since these things aren't cheap. And is there an alternate? Is um, Is there a holistic alternative? Is there a diet that I can do? Is there something I can do to fix the problem instead of just medicating it? You know, diabetes is a... Unless you have type 1, which is genetic, it's a disease of lifestyle. It's food-driven. It's diet-driven. You don't have to have type 2 diabetes. It's something that's, that happens because you're not doing the right things. You know, do you really do need to go to Chick-fil-A or McDonald's every day? Do you really need to have you know, donuts for breakfast every morning? Do you really need to do that? Or can you make a smoothie? Can you do things at home? First of all, you save a ton of money. And have those as a treat instead of every day. You know, these are things that patients really need. Citizens, people all over the world, need to make a conscious choice about what they're putting in their bodies. If you don't know what it is, you can't read the label, maybe you shouldn't put, be eating it. A very good point. Um, you know, become a rabbit. Eat green stuff <laughs> or, or grow it if you can have it, the yeah. ability to grow your own food or you know what if you can't go to a local farmer's market you know they actually have food services now that for actually like a five dollars a day whatever it is you can actually get organically grown food sent to your home instead of you going up in the supermarket buying all the preservatives and you know, chemically-based foods out there that you're putting in your microwave, which I'm sure is not healthy. Save that money, you know, and maybe you have a food service. Let's say you don't want to cook or you or you don't want to shop or you can't. It can, be, it can be sent to you. There's so many things now that will make it easier to do the right thing, to eat the right way. And maybe just one meal. You know, start small. Maybe do a smoothie in the morning. As your, as your meal, instead of going out to have your breakfast or making bacon or whatever you're doing that's probably not the healthiest thing in the world, have one meal where you actually do something that's 
going to put vitamins, fiber, um, whole foods into your system. That's That alone does it wonders for you not craving sugar, for not craving salt, which puts you two steps ahead. The sugar is really not a good thing, especially the processed variety, especially high fructose corn syrup. It's absolutely toxic. And if people were to take that out of their system, even raw sugar is better than high fructose corn syrup. Those energy drinks that have, um, what is it, uh, vitamin water and all those things that have fructose in them, it's completely toxic to the liver. It's making your sugar, your insulin resistance go up. You're not losing weight on any of these diet things where, you know, diet soda and diet foods where they just pack in sugar. You know, it's low fat, but it's got sugar in it and sodium. I mean, these are things that patients really, if you would just do one or two of these things, you'd be amazed. Your belly fat would go down. Your energy level would go up. You sleep better. And then once you start feeling better, then you have the energy to continue down that road. But taking a medication to cover it, so you can still do the bad things, but the pill fixes it all, that is just complete marketing. And it's costing people money, and it's costing people their lives. And in my opinion, it's feeding this system, which is absolutely working against patients and physicians. Only way we win this is to withdraw our consent. Find a doctor who's not part of the system. This is not a level playing field anymore. An independent physician has a different standard of care than one who is an employee of a hospital. That's the truth, and it's not better to be part of a hospital system. It's more unwieldy, it's expensive, it's one-size-fits-all, it's doing things to you that you don't need, which you just described it when you talked about being in the hospital, Dave, these are, the, you know, these are things that patients really, you have control. You just need to take it back. Nobody has the right to force you to get a, a vaccine if you don't want it, to take a medication, to have a procedure, to put you in a comfort care. All those things are things that are done to you, but the system stops being the system when you have people who are, outliers who question it, who are disruptive to this. They want you to actually go along willingly, but they're doing it in such a way that you're never really fully informed. And when you do start to ask questions, they change the language so that they make you think it's different. It's not. And we probably need to take a break right quick. back to mention on call. You know, before the break, I was trying to, again, really alert people that it's, you have to take responsibility and be an active participant in your health care. And you need, I mean, in my opinion, you need to find a doctor that's going to be your advocate. And more importantly, that can be your advocate. I really feel for the doctors who are on, on staff and and, and employees of a hospital system at this point, because it's like having, you know, someone tie your hands, one hand behind your back, put a, a gag on your mouth, and just basically make you walk down a pathway that you may not agree with, but you really don't have power to stop unless you 
put yourself in a position of being a, a disruptive doctor where you might end up in peer review, or you have to step away from the hospital system and start over. I mean, the doctors who sold their practices to hospitals, they don't own those equipments, any the, the equipment anymore. They don't own the staff. They literally have to step away from something that they built for maybe 15, 20 years and start over. And usually not in the same location. You have covenants where you can't even practice within a certain, you know, a mile from the original, from the place you stopped practicing. When I left my practice back, when I left... Um, a group before I opened my own practice. It was 11-mile radius that I couldn't practice within. I think it was for like two years. So imagine if you've practiced in one spot for your entire career, having to pick up stakes and move to a different city, a different state. That's a huge thing. If you're, you have kids in college, you know, you're having practiced for 15, 20 years, it's really like starting over. And that's a daunting thing for an average person. I don't care what profession they're in. To start over and hope for the best is very frustrating, and I think it's anxiety-provoking. And it keeps the system it, it keeps the system going. But this is a system not voluntarily, it, you know, driven. It's driven by duress, and that's not a healthy system. If the people in it are miserable, if the system is running by fear and intimidation. This is not a system that, to me, is going to provide health care that's going to be good health care to the patient. Everybody's cracking a whip. Everybody's jumping as high as they want you to jump. I mean, seriously, I don't want anything like that. I want to be able to walk into a doctor's office, have the undivided attention of the doctor, spend as much time as I need to get all of my questions answered, know what the cost of something is up front, before something is done to me. If I need to make a payment arrangement, I can do that, right? Or if there's going to be a discount, if I pay at the time of service, I want that option too. These are things that actually any healthcare consumer has a right to ask for. You don't get that in this system. You're getting a third party, a some sort of entity that doesn't provide a service, mind you. The insurance company doesn't provide a service. They're not sitting there in the doctor's office seeing you. They're not reading a radiology or a pathology report. All they're doing is manipulating the money. You give them money and they control access and they control payment. And now increasingly, they're controlling outcome and they don't have liability for it. That's unacceptable. And if patients saw it like that, I think they'd have a lot more questions that they would ask before they entered that system. How can something actually have so much power but not be liable? That's, I mean, does that freak you out just to, just to know that? But they want to take your money. They get to control how much money is spent on your care. And if something happens, it's untoward. Oh, well, you know. We don't have any. We don't have any control over that. You can't come after us. I mean, come on. That doesn't even make sense. It's a great business model, though. I got to give them that. Yep. Uh, you you hit so many facts that uh, uh, we just we as patients we have to wake up and not to smell the roses, but to. Uh, Maybe cut the roses and uh, distribute them. 
hospital? I think the first step is to know that there's a problem. That's the first step. Mm-hmm. Hopefully anybody listening to the show has figured that out by now. I, I hope. And make a conscious choice. There is, you know, I, if you like this system, then you should be able to have all of it you, you like. You know, that's, I'm a big fan of patient responsibility and patient choice. And if you like this, then by all means, have Obamacare, go down the third-party payer pathway, and good luck. But for those who don't want that, this is the problem that I'm having, is that they want everybody to have one choice, one size fits all. Remove competition, become a monopoly. Every time you hear the word public-private partnership, your, you know, the hair on the back of your neck should stand up because that means the government, the private entity is going to use the power of the government to force you to do something. That's a problem. Right now they're talking in this meeting that I'm at about having the government mandate that people give up their, their health information, you know, their privacy, forcing them to create a database or a, an ID that's unique to patients. So think about this for a second. The electronic medical record system started off based on a law passed by the government that first it was the carrot. If doctors get on the electronic medical record system, they'll get $40,000 in tax return for the cost of you know, implementing this healthcare um, electronic record. That's how it started. Then it became you have to put in a certain amount of information, especially Medicaid, Medicare. You have to put in a certain amount, a certain amount of government-mandated information in order to be paid. If you don't, then you get ding, the 1% off of what your, um, your receivables or your reimbursement will be. So then it became a stick. Now it's you have to not only give the information that we're asking you to, to gather, and that means do you have a gun in your home, have you ever tried to hurt yourself, how many people live in your home, it's become more of a social Answer, question and answer as opposed to just a medical one. That all has to be answered. As I mentioned before, you can't close the chart unless you put the answers in into those spots. So you've got this grid. You have to provide the data. The doctors are now the main data mining resource because when the patient comes to see the physician or the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant, the medical provider, that's a catchment and that's Droves of information that's coming into this system. The next thing they want to do is have an interoperability. So if I have a different company that I have electronic medical records and my colleague has a different medical record system, they want us to be able to communicate with each other, send our charts and our notes so that we can read each other's notes. But they also want to have a central database, a central catchment. So whatever goes on in anybody doc, any doctor's office gets captured on this main data source. That's what Google comes in. So everything that we do in our country, every doctor relationship or interaction gets captured in a major database. So if I'm in California and I get sick and I and I'm from New York, technically what they're saying is that I should be able to go to that hospital and they access my information. But how do they know it's me, right? So now they're into the mindset of you can't go by the name, the date of birth, who the husband is, what you do for a living. So there's too many errors in that. 
So they want patients now to have a unique identifying marker. Now, it can't be your name, really, because there's too many mistakes made. So they're now talking about biometrics. Think about this for a second. It's like a frog boiling in a pot. So your fingerprint may not be good enough, but your iris scan is going to be good enough. So everybody's going to have to give some sort of biometric piece of, of information, and they're going to have to start somewhere. So they're talking about doing it for children at the time of birth. And that will be your card, and you'll follow, you'll keep that throughout your life, and that's how you, you know, the system will know who you are. Do you have a problem with that? Because I sure as heck do, <laughs> right? But they're going to put it in the system and and implement it in such a way that it's all about patient safety and not going to a hospital and being given a prescription that you might be allergic to. Meanwhile, why don't you just ask the patient, what are you allergic to, Right. Mm-hmm. Or call up the physician that the patient has and ask them, you know, what's the history? Can you send it to me? This is all going to be automated, but it's really all about capturing unique data so they can identify you individually. For what purpose? Is it really about all health? I don't know. But I don't want people to think about that <laughs> because everything that makes it easy for you may not be as easy as you think. There may be a consequence, an unintended consequence. But really, when you're thinking about your DNA and your unique data, your your biometrics, your eye scan, your fingerprint, do you really want that to be held in a cloud? Do you really want a government-public-private partnership where it's all about data and selling data and using you as a money-making source? Do you really want that? That's the questions you really have to start asking yourself. It's not so simple anymore of, I'm going to go to the doctor, I'm going to just get seen. It's not just that anymore. I mean, it's it's integrated. Even if you use the, the DNA, Ancestry.com and DNA23, whatever that is, that's not private either. They have a disclaimer that they can sell that information. It no longer belongs to you, that they can actually sell that for commercial purposes. Think about what you do. Just because it's trendy doesn't make it right. And on that note, I'm going to end the show. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine on Call. You can read my blog, DrElanaGeorge.com, and um, just take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. Dr. George, thank you as always, and uh, we'll see you next week. 